Well, good morning, guys. How are y'all? Okay, let's try again. Good morning. All right. Um, how many of you guys are ready to go back to school? How many parents are ready for everybody to go back to school? Yes. Yes, I am. I'm ready for school to start. How many of you guys are ready for Alabama to lose tomorrow? Absolutely. Well, definitely going to be praying for that, so make sure that happens. Nick Saban needs to go down. All right. I want to propose a question to you this morning. What is worship? If I were to ask each of you individually what it means to worship God, what would your answer be? See, for some of you, you might say that worship is singing praises to God. Some of you might say that worship is actually praying to God. Some of you might say that it's serving. Some of you might say that it's the, the church service, the whole service that we do. My guess is, is that I would probably get at least a hundred different answers about what it means to worship God. And my guess is that those answers would probably vary depending on what age group you were in and what traditions that you grew up with. And I definitely would say that our answers would vary from church to church and denomination to denomination. A few years ago, there was a story about a New Mexico woman who was frying tortillas. And when she noticed that the skillet burns on one of her tortillas resembled the face of Jesus, she excitedly showed it to her husband and her neighbors. And they all agreed that the face that was etched on the tortilla truly bore a resemblance to Jesus. So the woman took her tortilla and she went to her priest to have it blessed. She testified that the tortilla had changed her life. And her husband agreed. He said that she had been a more peaceful, happy, submissive wife since the tortilla arrived. Now the priest was not accustomed to blessing tortillas, and he was somewhat reluctant to do so, but he did anyways. And then the woman took the tortilla home, and she put it in a glass case on piles of cottons to make it look like it was floating on clouds. She built a special altar for it, and she opened the little shrine to visitors. And within a few months, more than 8,000 people came to the shrine of Jesus the Tortilla. And all of them, I'm not joking, this is a real story, and all of them agreed that the face on the tortilla looked like Jesus, except for one reporter who thought it looked like Leon Spinks. So, George Barna, if you guys don't know who George Barna is, he, he founded the Barna Group. And the Barna Group is a market research firm that specializes in studying the beliefs and behaviors of Americans. And according to their research, they found out that over half, half of church-going adults did not experience God's presence in the last year. And that two-thirds of all church-going adults cannot describe what worship is. And Barna goes on to say that most Christians consider worship a secondary priority. And the large majority of them think worship is just a Sunday morning event. And that scares me a little bit. Because for the most part, that's why we exist. I mean, we are created to worship God. We are created to bring Him glory. I mean, the central theme for how we live and why we live is worship. I pray that our church doesn't represent those statistics because my fear is, is if we as a church, if we lose the meaning and the heart of what worship is, then I'm afraid we're going to lose our passion for God and his vision for this church. 
A.W. Tozer said, Worship is the missing jewel of the church. He said, I believe that one of the problems in our church is that people do not have a biblical understanding of worship. As someone as well said of American Christians, we have become a generation of people who worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. He said, when our worship grows stale, so does our passion for God, that worship is the furnace of the spiritual life. So what is worship? Does the experience and the actions of that New Mexico woman and her tortilla, does that qualify as worship? I mean, what makes for real worship? Is worship just singing, praying, and reading God's Word? Or is there more to it than just that? And how do you know when God is pleased with our worship? How do you know when He's not pleased with it? See, all of these are good questions. And I've got to be honest. I've got to be honest with you. I really had a hard time trying to figure out the best way to present this idea. And it isn't because there isn't any information out there about what worship is. There's tons of information. I spent almost 40 hours this week just reading and studying about worship. But the problem I had, it's the same issue that I have when I ask each one of you about what worship is. I get a multitude of varied answers. So you have this amazing program, this study program, Bible study program called Logos. And it allows me to do searches that I would never be able to do without it. I mean, I can literally search thousands of books and multiple translations of the Bible for, for a word or a concept in a matter of seconds. And when you use Logos and you search the whole Bible and all the different translations that I have, which is about 20, I have about 20 translations, the word worship or the concept of worship, is mentioned in the Bible over 8,000 times in over 7,500 different verses. Which is great, because you would think from those 7,500 verses, I would be able to find one of them that defines what worship is. But when you search the whole Bible and all those different translations, and you put in worship is, you get zero results. There is no verse that I could find that says worship is this. Yet examples of worship are all throughout the Bible. It's through the whole Bible. I have a lot of them I want to show to you. I'm not going to read them all. I just want to show you what I mean by how much worship is in the Bible. From the very beginning in Genesis, um, when the line of Seth began to worship God by name, you have worship mentioned, to Isaac Abraham and Jacob, who are all worshipers of God. And then you go to Moses, and Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, where God not only warns them against the worship of anything other than himself, but then he prescribes very detailed information on how he should be worshipped. I mean, one of the purposes of the Mosaic Law, including all of the ceremonies, the rituals, and the sacrifices, was to regulate worship of God. As a matter of fact, there's the detailed descriptions of the tabernacle itself takes up over 250 verses in Leviticus. And then you have the Psalms. And the Psalms are full of worship. I mean, basically the Psalms is a whole book of songs of praise and worship to God. And actually a lot of the songs that we sing here on Sunday come and are derived from the Psalms. And then you have King Solomon who builds the permanent temple of God in Jerusalem where Jews from all over the nation come to offer sacrifices 
in worship to God. But God again warns them about worshiping anything but himself. But of course, Israel doesn't obey God's commands. And throughout multiple generations, they turn their faces from God. And the focus of their worship is influenced by the pagan religious beliefs of other nations. To the point where God is offended when they worship him. And so God sends prophets to Israel in an effort to bring them back to proper worship of the true God. And then we move into the New Testament. And in the New Testament, Jesus is born. And Christ is worshipped at his birth, as well as during his ministry and after his resurrection. So now the focus of worship moves to Jesus. And as Jesus, after his resurrection, as the church begins to grow in Acts, the gospel of Jesus is being spread all over, and the new church begins to grow, and worship becomes a central part of their daily lives. Then throughout the letters that Paul and the other apostles write to all the different churches that are growing, giving them instructions on the who, the how, and the why of worship. And then finally in Revelations, you have Jesus, the conquering king, who returns. And we have a picture of what worship in heaven will be like. So from Genesis to Revelations, worship of the true God is a central theme. And there is example after example after example of people worshiping God. But I was having a hard time putting a definition to it. And it wasn't that I couldn't find a definition, because I could. I did find definitions I mean, if you look, the primary Hebrew word for worship in the Old Testament is shakaha, which literally means to bow down or to prostrate oneself in homage to royalty or to God. In the New Testament, there are a number of Greek words that are translated into worship. The one that's most often used is proskuno, and it means to fall down or worship, to do reverence, to prostrate oneself. The second most used word is latruo, which means to minister to God, to render religious homage. Even our English word, our word for worship, comes from an old English word meaning worth-ship, which means to ascribe worth, to assign value. So it wasn't that I couldn't find a definition. It was just that I felt like there was more to worship than just that, to just that definition. And the reason that I was feeling that way is because in all the examples that I was reading about worship, They were all different. All of them were different in the when, all of them were different in the where, and all of them were different in the how. But all of them were the same in the why. All of them were in a response to the redemptive action of God in their lives. See, from the very beginning since the fall of man, God has been in the process of redeeming mankind. From sacrificing animals to make clothes for Adam and Eve, to the promise that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to all the nations. And that blessing would be the coming of Christ into this world. God, from the very start, has been making a way to restore the fellowship that was broken by our sin. And even though, just like Israel, we often turn away from God, He is always providing a way of deliverance from our bondage of sin. One redemptive act at a time. That's why I don't think there's a clear definition. See, I believe, that, I believe that worship is innate in us. It was what we were created to do. And that worship is expressed as we experience God's redemptive work in our lives. 
Let me put it to you this way. Why does God deliver the Israelites from slavery of Egypt? I mean, he tells Pharaoh this. He tells them he wants to worship them. He says, tell Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so they can worship me in the wilderness. How is Israel able to worship God? It's because of what God did. It's because of his redemptive act. They could not worship God properly as long as they were in bondage to the Egyptians. And the same goes for us. We cannot worship God without being delivered from the bondage of our sin through the redemption that God offers us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. See, God brought the Israelites out of Egypt to show them a new pattern of life, a new way of living. Why? Why does he do that? And it's so that he can dwell with them. He says, then I will live among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord their God. I am the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I could live among them. I am the Lord their God. God wanted to show them a new pattern of life through knowing who he is. See, the purpose of all of it was for God to be known and to be made known. It was all about a relationship. God restoring the broken fellowship. And it wasn't just for them, it was for the whole world. See, Israel's purpose was to show God to the whole world. It says, now if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests. My holy nation, this is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Israel's purpose was to show the world who God was. That's the purpose of a priest. A priest bridges the gap between God and those that don't know God. And see, the same is true for why Jesus, whose name is Emmanuel, which means God with us, comes to this earth. Jesus comes to this earth. Why? so we can know who God is. And Jesus is the ultimate and final sacrifice that bridges that gap between us and God. That's why the veil in the temple is ripped in two when Jesus is crucified. Because there's no longer a barrier between us and God anymore. Through Jesus, we have direct access to relationship with God. And those of us who have experienced God's redemptive acts in our lives, we know God through the relationship of the Holy Spirit and we continue to grow in our understanding of who He is and what He desires for our lives. And in that, in that we have the same responsibility that Israel had. That was to make God known to others. In 1 Peter it says this, But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation. Sounds familiar to the Exodus passage. God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, all of that, all of that is worship. But it's hard to define. Because if worship is about relationship, then how do you define relationship? It's difficult. I mean, yes, you can look it up in a dictionary and you can find a definition of a relationship, but does that definition 
describe the relationship that you have with your husband or that you have with your wife or that you have with your kids. No, it doesn't. There's so much more to it than just a definition. You see, I believe worship at its essence. Worship at its essence is the response of a heart that is earnestly striving and crying out after the heart of God. I mean, worship flows from this deep, wrenching hunger and thirst in our desire to know who God is. And not only to know Him, but to dwell in Him. Is worship singing praise as loud as you can? Yes. But it's also sitting in complete silence. Is worship bowing down in God's presence? Yes. But it's also dancing in joy to Him. Is worship an emotional experience? Yes. But it's also logical reasoning. Is worship giving, serving, praying, and reading God's Word? Yes, it's all of those things, but it's so much more as well. See, worship is a way of life, a life of worship. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your everyday ordinary life, your eating, your sleeping, your going to work, your walking around, And I want you to place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for Him. See, the problem is I think we get so caught up in how we should worship that we forget the heart of why we worship. And Jesus faced this question in His ministry as well. And it's found in John 4. The encounter began when Jesus was traveling through Samaria. The the people of Samaria, they were enemies to the people of Israel. See, both sides thought that they were heirs to the covenant or the promise that Abraham had received from God. And each side thought that they truly worshipped God the right way. And Jesus stops to get a drink from this well, and he meets a woman there, and he begins a conversation with her. And so let's pick it up in verse 19. The woman says to him, Sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship. Why we Samaritans claim it is here at the heart of Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped. So she's basically asking, who's right? Which way of worship is correct? And Jesus says to her, he says, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. See, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. While we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus answers her by saying, you're missing the whole point about worship. It's not the location or the external forms that really matter, but it's the attitude of a worshiper's heart. Remember our two translations. One means to bow down. The other means to minister to God. So worship is a bowing of our heart, a humbling of ourselves, and offering ourselves to God. 
That's what we must do to worship in spirit. See, the Samaritan woman was more concerned about how worship is done than who it is for. You see, worship is not for us. The purpose of worship is not for our benefit. It is not for us to feel good or to be filled. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Worship is not for us. Worship is for God and God alone. Now the cool thing about it is that God always gives us back more than we could ever give Him. But when we make worship about us, when it's about our preferences, our tastes, our comforts, our opinions, when worship is about ministering to our needs, then what we're saying to God is that God, worship is about me. And when we make worship about us, then the object of worship becomes us, not God. I'm going to tell you, I'm guilty of this. I really am. There have been so many times when I've said things like, I just didn't feel like the worship was very powerful today. Or I didn't really get anything out of the service. Or I didn't really like the music. It just didn't click with me. And I've come to realize just how wrong the picture I had of worship is. See, I kept putting conditions on the offering that I was giving to God. I was saying, well, when the music is right and it's good and it resonates with me, when the lighting is just perfect, when the message is powerful, when all of that comes together, well, then I'm going to offer my praise to you, God. See, worship was never meant for the entertainment of man. It was meant for man to minister to God. See, to worship God in spirit is to connect with God person to person. It is to be in relationship. But it's relationship in the proper positioning. God above all things. And my heart bowed and humbled before Him, offering my life and my all to Him. The other thing that the Samaritan woman was missing was worship in truth. She was worried about the location of worship. And Jesus was saying, you don't even know who you worship. Jesus was more concerned with her knowing the truth and knowing who God is and living that knowledge out in her life than he was concerned about the where and the how. See, a lot of people think worship is this external thing, that it's a ritual, a performance, or an activity that takes place at a, at a prescribed time following predetermined forms. But see, that's not the spirit of true worship. Worship is not just an event that happens on a Sunday morning. And don't get me wrong. There is something really, really special that happens when the bride of Christ, his church, comes together corporately to wholeheartedly show love, honor, and praise to him. It's something amazing that can't happen anywhere else. But how empty is that gesture if Sunday is the only day that we acknowledge his existence? And the rest of the week is lived serving only ourselves. See, worship and truth must be an overflow, an overflow of a worshiping life. In Psalms 45, David says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. The Hebrew word for overflows means to boil over. And in a sense, that's what praise and worship actually is. A love so warm that the heart reaches a boiling point. 
and worship pours out. And as God reveals truth to us, as His righteousness lights our path, as His mercy, grace, and love is poured out on us, we in turn offer our love back to Him in worship. And the greatest expression of that love is obedience. See, John 14 says, those who accept my commandments, this is Jesus talking, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. This is obedience that is out of love, not out of obligation. We obey Jesus because we love him so deeply because of what he's done for us. It isn't a workspace thing that I'm talking about here. We aren't doing things to try to earn the favor of God. We already have God's favor. We already have that. It's freely given to us. Salvation, God's grace, is freely given to all who accept it. You see, if salvation is based on our obedience, then it's a payment. And our payment just isn't enough. If our obedience is out of obligation, then it's an insult. It's an insult to the priceless sacrifice that Christ paid for us. You see, God, God, does, God doesn't want us out of obligation. God desires our free will offering of love and obedience. Psalms 51 says, You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire, look at this, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. And see, that's what worship is. Brian, you guys can come up. Salvation. Salvation is God showing love to us. Obedience is us showing love to God. What would it look like? What would it look like if we became a church that truly understands what it means to worship God in truth and spirit? What would happen if we actually saw ourselves as a nation of priests with the responsibility to minister to God and to show the world who God is and to bring the world to God? How powerful would God's presence be felt in this community if we lived each day in obedience? How much sweeter would our corporate worship be if the bride of Christ came every Sunday prepared by living a life of worship that overflowed every single day in every area of life? I think it would change your life. I think it would change my life. I think it would change our church. I think it would change this whole community. See, I think God is still looking for true worshipers. Those that put Him at the center of their desires, attention, time, money, and focus. He is looking for those that will put Him at the center of their very lives and existence. I pray that we truly become that which God seeks. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for 
your, just, your, your amazing love and grace, God, and, and, and the redemption that you have for us. God, you have been pursuing us from the very beginning. And Father, that, that pursuit, that perfect picture of that is your Son, who you sent to die for us, to redeem us, to, to bring us in relationship with you. God, I know we get so distracted in life. There are so many things that pull us different ways. But Father, you are so worthy of our worship. You are so worthy of our attention and focus. God, you are so worthy of our whole lives. God, help us to be true worshipers. Help us to be those that you seek. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.